This podcast is a co-production of Slate and The Appeal, a new publication about the justice system. And it's a companion to my new book, also called Charged, and available wherever you buy books. Okay, thanks for listening. Here's the show. Previously on Charged. When Terari got locked up at Rikers, his mom struggled to raise bail and get him out. It really was stressful thinking about how I'm going to get him out. Because we've never been in a situation like this. So we like, we don't just have that money offhand. I was looking for that bail ASAP, though. You feel me? Like, y'all got to get me out of here. It took like forever for them to get him home. We bailed him out and he didn't come home until days later. I'm Emily Bazelon, and this is Charged, a true punishment story inside New York's gun court. The day after his arrest, Terari was assigned a public defender who visited him in detention. She gave him and his mom the lowdown. Here's Valinda. She was telling us he was going to do no jail time. He doesn't have a record. You know, this is an easy case. But then his lawyer and his mom found out Terari's case wasn't on the regular docket. They told me they had new court only for gun cases. Like, oh, shoot. So in my, my mind, I'm like, yeah, it's going to be a lot of it's going to be a lot of trouble in here because... I already know this is New York City. The tourists come here, and it's being gentrified now. Like, they want to get the guns off the street for new people so they could be able to live peacefully. If there's a court for guns, that means a lot of people will be getting locked up. Terraria was nervous. Valinda was nervous. And the next time they talked to the lawyer, so was she. Valinda could hear it in her voice. She calls us, and she tells us, well... The least he'll do is two or three to five years. And I'm like, whoa, what are you talking about? My son is not doing no jail. And she said, well, you know, he was caught with a gun and her whole, everything just changed. Terari was facing serious prison time for merely possessing a gun. And it's worth saying that if he'd been almost anywhere else, this probably wouldn't be happening to him. In states like Vermont and Florida, they don't even have gun permits. There is no such thing as an illegal handgun. And if you're caught in, say, Texas or Wisconsin without a gun permit, you can get off with a small fine. And of course, in all those places, there's a massive organization fighting for your right to have a gun. When it comes to telling the truth and fighting for our fundamental freedoms, no one fights harder, longer, or stronger than the NRA. But not in Brooklyn. Gun lobbyists have never shown up in gun court even though it should be a five-alarm fire for the NRA. It's hard to ignore race here. In surveys, white people are more likely than black people to say they have a gun. Yet, black people are four times more likely to get arrested for having one. When gun violence still saturates some predominantly black neighborhoods, they don't get more social services. They get more prison. As Yale Law professor James Foreman puts it, they get the worst of both worlds, shootings and prison. And we've seen this before. In the last decades, the war on drugs morphed into one big excuse for sending overwhelming numbers of black men to prison, even though white and black drug use is statistically the same. For some, the disparity has just become a way of life. Here's Valinda. I actually walking down the street coming from the grocery store. You have this group of white young men standing over there. They smoking weed. And I'm like, holy crap, that stink. So... I see the police, do-do-do-do-do-do, nothing. 
By the time I turn and get to the neighborhood, you see a couple, I say three or four young black dudes standing on the corner, kicking it, smoking. Here go the cops, jumping out, get against the gate. I'm confused. That makes no sense. But it couldn't have been more true. When random searches were the policy in New York, the NYPD stopped and frisked fully four out of five of the young black men in the city every year. So to Valinda, Terari's arrest was all too familiar. Politicians like de Blasio were trumpeting their shiny new idea of gun court. But in reality, they'd backed themselves into running a very old play. From winter to spring, in the half-dozen times Terari went to court, he got more and more frustrated with his lawyer. My public defender, she keeps saying, oh, they're they trying to give you two years. I don't know what to do. He kept pushing her, but it was like she couldn't hear what he was saying. I'm like, I'm telling her, like, can I, like, can you, like, try to figure out something for me? Like, this is my first offense. Uh, I'm like, can, well, can you try harder? He didn't understand why she wasn't fighting. Views in my shoes and you heard what she was talking about. I was like, I was like a scrambling egg. What are you talking about? So I needed somebody that could actually explain. So that's why I got rid of her so I could get a better lawyer. It was another make or break decision, figuring out once again how to get off the knife's edge. That's what started making my heart beat like, I have to, I'm going to have to pay for a lawyer. To hire their own lawyer, Tari and his mom needed a big sum of money. And suddenly, they came into one. The story behind that money was just as much a product of Tari's circumstances as his decision to get a gun. A few years back, when Tari was 17, he went to see if a friend of his mom's needed anything at the store. She lived in his housing development. He left her building by the back exit. He had his headphones on, with the music turned all the way up. Blasting in his ears. I yell at him a lot about that. The back exit opened onto a flight of stairs. Trari stepped out. All I know, I was being chased. In my mind, I don't, know, I don't even know who I'm being chased by, so I'm just running. Still got my headphones in my ear. And when I went to take it out, I just... I was pushed to a um, scaffolding pole and bust my head. The person chasing Terari was a plainclothes police officer. Another officer grabbed him. I'm being grabbed to the ground, knee in my back, forearm to my neck, on my head. And all I heard is, if you move, I'm going to kill you. And right there, I got punched in my stomach, and I, I started yelling for help. The police took Terari to the precinct. A friend of Alinda's called her at work in Queens. The people said all they know, they saw him getting thrown out of the building door of the staircase. She got in a cab and went straight to the police station. And I saw my son's head, and he has this big bandage with blood coming through it. I went zero to 100. And then I got on the phone and proceeded to call internal affairs. The police claim they got a complaint about a black man carrying a knife, and that's why they stopped Tarari. But he didn't have a knife on him, so they charged him with trespassing. He lives in a neighborhood. He has ID on him. How's he trespassing? The next morning, the judge dismissed the charges. Valinda got Tarari to the hospital. Along with the wound on his head, he had a serious back injury. So Tarari and Valinda went looking for a lawyer. They found Alyssa Brownstein, and one thing about Tarari's case caught her eye immediately. Well, I'm particularly sensitive to trespass arrests um, because there had been an epidemic of police arresting 
um, kids trespassing and mostly surrounding housing projects. The more Brownstein learned about Terari's case, the more appealing she found it. He was visiting someone in his own housing project. He had ID on him. And then there was the cut and bruise she could see on Terari. Straight front and center in his forehead that the police did to him by bashing his head into a pole. I don't know if he still has the scar, but he had it for as long as I knew him. And it's your face, you know? Terrible. Brownstein filed a civil rights lawsuit on Terari's behalf. We pursued false arrests and claims of excessive force and assault against the officer and NYPD in the city. All of a sudden, the cops were interested in having a friendly chat. They started calling me. They started coming to our neighborhood trying to talk to him. They was um, trying to talk to me, get me to come in with my son and me and him could sit down with the captain and talk. But Troy and Valinda didn't want to talk outside of a civil courtroom. In the end, they won $30,000 from the city. That's a drop in the bucket of the roughly $75 million New York pays out each year to settle lawsuits against the police. By the way, one of the officers who injured Terari was recently promoted. He made sergeant. If you've been enjoying this podcast, I want to let you know that it wouldn't have been possible without Slate's membership program, Slate Plus. The support from members has helped fund exciting projects at Slate, like Slow Burn and Standoff, and the daily journalism you see on Slate.com every day. If you want to help Slate continue this kind of work, please sign up for Slate Plus now at Slate.com slash charged. It's only $35 for the first year, and you'll get benefits like ad-free podcast feeds and discounted tickets to Slate's live events. And you'll get even more episodes of Charged. Sign up at slate.com slash charged. The money from the lawsuit came in right as Terari and his mom found the lawyer they wanted for gun court. His name was Daniel Lynch. I took a seat across from him, literally surrounded by towers of slumping manila folders. I should have pulled the file out, but you can see my office is kind of a mess. So Lynch had the closed-circuit video of Terari's arrest from the apartment building. And on it, you can see the cops every move. They were doing what they called a vertical which is that they went to the top of the building, and then they came down each floor and just checked. In the police report of Terari's arrest, the cops said that when they saw Terari in the lobby, they, quote, observed the handle of a firearm in defendant's waistband. But on the video, you can see that Terari was wearing an oversized hoodie, and there was no way for the cops to see his waistband or anything else. And when they got to the, to the, to the lobby, Terari's sitting in with his friend, and they're just looking out the window. They're not doing anything. And then they just took him down. To stop and frisk someone, the police are supposed to have reasonable cause. That means a reason they can articulate. Lynch didn't think the cops had one, at least not from the video. My position at that point was that um, the stop and the seizure by the police officers was, was unconstitutional, that we had a pretty good chance of winning the hearing in this case. If the detectives searched Terari because someone tipped them off that he had a gun, they had to say so. But they didn't. Instead, the prosecutor suddenly opened a big door. The prosecutor then decided to say, why don't we see if we can screen him for YCP? YCP, it's a program for young defendants. And some of the young men I met in gun court were figuring out that it was a possible escape hatch. YCP stands for Youth and Congregations and Partnership, because it started in the mid-90s as a church program. But social workers took it over years ago. YCP is really unusual, 
because it's one of the only diversion programs anywhere in America for people accused of violent felonies. If you make it through, the prize at the end is big. You don't get a felony conviction, you don't go to prison, and you don't even have a criminal record. The cops in New York hate this program. When the New York Times wrote about YCP a few years ago, around the time gun court opened, the cops said that offering young people with guns any chance at diversion was a failure of the system. When I called the NYPD, they declined to comment about YCP. But the police had made their feelings very clear to Eric Gonzalez in the DA's office. They really don't believe there's an innocent reason for someone to carry a gun. And and just quite frankly, you know, they believe that folks who carry guns, they only carry guns for two reasons, because they're going to commit a crime or they're afraid that someone's going to do something to them. Then they're going to turn around and use the gun. I heard similar things from cops I talked to on the street. And yet, while Eric was running for DA, he kept YCP alive, quietly. It is something that is an intractable disagreement between my office and the police department. The opposition from the police increased the political risk for Eric. If a defendant got into YCP and then hurt someone, Eric and the DA's office would have to answer for it on their own. If we don't select the right people, if they turn around and they commit a violent felony crime and they hurt someone else, then we were told the blood would be on our hands. If one of the people that we divert commits a crime, that we're not going to get any cover from anywhere. In New York, this nightmare has a name, Tyrone Howard. In 2014, Howard got caught selling crack. He had a long rap sheet, including armed robbery. But instead of prison, a judge put him into a diversion program for drug treatment. The judge said to him, I'm putting some trust in you. Please don't disappoint me. Now, the story we're following closely tonight, murder charges for Tyrone Howard, the man accused of shooting and killing a police officer. The 30-year-old is a career criminal. He was freed from jail as part of a diversion program. The mayor and police commissioner say freeing Howard was wrong. You sure as hell shouldn't have been on the streets. If the cops feared another Tyrone Howard coming out of a diversion program, Eric Gonzalez feared putting the next Tyrone Howard into one. That was the risk to be weighed every time someone like Terari tried to get into YCP. Politicians feel pressure to respond to catastrophes like Tyrone Howard. That's often the way they make policy, because most of their experiences of tragedy come from the headlines at a distance. That's true for a lot of people in power. But the new wave of criminal justice reform is pulling in people with a profoundly different life experience. People like Eric Gonzalez. My little brother um, developed a drug habit probably at 13 or 14 years old. Eric was two years older. He watched as his half-brother turned into the kind of kid who, once he tried drugs, tried everything. Um, From sniffing glue, drinking NyQuil, however he could get high to, like, at some point, you know, ultimately he got involved... Um, which was uncommon back then with heroin. They saw a lot of each other growing up. But as they got older, Eric saw the gap between them widen. I'm seeing that I'm going to go to college, and I'm seeing my younger brother, like, you know, deteriorating, not going to school, like, basically dropping out of high school. like, And I'm trying to help him. On occasion, you know, it would get really bad where he would just kind of disappear. 
and people would have to go look for him. Um, and so I knew some of the locations where he would hang out and, you know, try to find him. And we did what we could do um, to get him into rehab. Sometimes that worked. For a while, at least. He went in and out of drug treatment, you know, um, typical story where there would be some success and then something would derail him. Um, but when he was good, you know, he was the opposite. You know, if I'm the anti-charismatic one, he was the charismatic one. In 1995, when Eric became a prosecutor, he thought his brother was doing okay. He had gotten a job as a manager of a, a radio shack and they trusted him. He had the keys to the store. But Eric's brother owed money to a couple of drug dealers. It was not more than $60. I remember um, even asking him about it. I had heard about that like, some guys were looking for him. And I said, I'm not, I was saying, I hope this is not over drugs. He said, no, it was, you know, he's like, I don't even owe him that money. That You know, like, I'm going to take care of it. And I'm like, you know, if you need the money, I'll give it to you. And he's like, no, I'm telling you, this is, it's nothing, it's nothing. And then what happened? We didn't know, actually. We, he was shot in the face. Um, you know, he had two kids. <laughs> we had to have a closed casket because he was shot in the face. You know, it's a big family. I mean, there was, you know, hundreds of people there. And uh, um, it, was, it was It was terrible. No one was arrested for the killing. And worse, the police wouldn't talk to Eric's family. Every day with my brother's mother trying to get information. And they just wouldn't give her any information. And, you know, I got a call from my father, who I hadn't spoken to in, in a couple years. This is before the funeral. Son, I need you to find out. Put aside our differences. you got to find out what happened to your brother. And I said, okay, I will. And I tried to find out. But he didn't succeed. Eric's brother was killed in the Bronx, where the police didn't know Eric. And in some ways, he didn't want them to know who he was. One of the things, I don't know why, but I made the decision not to tell them I was a DA. Um, I just was his brother calling. Maybe you felt like you weren't supposed to use your, like, position in some way, or? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, again, it relates to the uncertainty of how I would be viewed, um, you know, by... The office that I worked in, that, what do you mean your brother's a, a drug addict? What do you mean that, you know, he was killed? Like, you know, how I would be viewed by law enforcement, you know, the suspicion that it would cast on me. For two years, the police had no suspects. The case went cold. Then, one day, a pizza delivery man walked into a police station and said he'd seen the shooting while he was out making a delivery. Witnessing the crime and keeping quiet, it had been eating away at him. The police cracked the case and arrested two suspects. But before the trial, the delivery man was deported to Mexico. Without him... Only one of them was convicted, and it was not convicted of murder, um, was convicted of manslaughter. The other guy was completely, like, acquitted, and he went home. Now Eric's family wanted him to ask the judge for a long sentence, to demand it as a prosecutor, formally in a letter. But, like, I never wrote something to the judge for sentencing. I never did anything. I never wanted to use my position to, and it bothered, really bothered uh, my family. They didn't understand. But I always felt like the system should be, I should, we should be treated the way everyone else is treated. 
The man who killed Eric's brother got a sentence that made him eligible for parole after 10 years. To Eric's family, that sentence seemed too light. They were devastated. So I got to see that side of what it feels like, the disappointment. And for me as a prosecutor, you know, I had been dealing with crime victims. But to step into that in a real intimate way was important. I knew there was crime, and I had witnessed friends growing up being shot and killed. But what it did to the family and how it destroyed the family was different. I saw how this, his death really impacted the family and had a different perspective. Before now, Eric hasn't told his brother's whole story publicly. But when he was running for DA, his brother's drug record became an issue. I got a phone call um, from one of the papers who, you know, someone had leaked that my brother um, had been convicted of drug possession. He had been convicted of, of a larceny. And they were going to use that in the campaign. Now Eric was devastated. I just said, I mean, I don't know why you would do this. I said, listen, my brother's dead, so you can do whatever you want with it. I just think it's disgusting to put his name in it. In the end, the paper killed the story. The lesson Eric took from all of this was that criminal justice isn't just about convicting the bad guy. It's not enough that we get to the right outcomes of cases. It's how we treat people in the process. You know, that does also mean the accused, but it also means witnesses and victims that... The reason why I think people think the criminal justice system is broken is not simply because we have mass incarceration, but because the system really does not treat any participant in ways that people feel that they're being heard or they're getting fairness or they're getting justice. What he remembers is his family trying to make sense of their shattered world. So here, my brother was killed. The police had no information. They're not willing to say to a grieving family member who calls on the phone, you know, what they think it's about. They're just like, we don't know, we'll keep you informed, and you don't hear anything. And you don't hear anything. That's still a refrain of victims' families in Brooklyn, at least from the time Eric's mentor, Ken Thompson, was running the office. And this very failing came up in Eric's campaign for DA. It was at a debate. The candidates were taking questions from the audience. The atmosphere was already tense when a woman with a pink flower in her hair stepped up to the microphone. Can y'all hear me? Speak My name is Hortensia Peterson, and I am the aunt of a Kai girly. We love you. Akai was murdered. Akai girly was killed by a rookie police officer, who in the end was let off with probation. The family felt betrayed by Ken Thompson and the DA's office. There was no communication if we did not continue to badger his office. Whenever we called his office, he's in a meeting, he's out of town. We had so much hell to get through to that office. There were five candidates on that stage. And most of what Ms. Peterson heard from them was standard issue rhetoric, like this. For for, For the public to have confidence in the system. It has to be transparent. Then Eric spoke. So what I'm, what I'm prepared to do is to sit down with every family who suffered a loss like yours and sit down, go through the case, and be with them. And- Hortensia Peterson wasn't satisfied with that answer. She kept challenging Eric that night. 
But he made it out of that debate and kept talking about his plans to give more second chances. In November 2017, he won the race for DA. It was a landslide. Next time on Charged, Terari tries to get into YCP, the diversion program, and discovers the stakes. 15 years, that's that's a long time. Like, I'm feeling like I ain't going to be able to see my family. 15 years, that's like my whole life. This episode of Charged was produced by Alvin Malif and written by me. Jack Hitt is our senior editor. Mixed by Catherine Ray Mondo. Mastering by Merritt Jacob. If you want to learn more about the issues raised in this show, I have a new book out. It's also called Charged. Check it out wherever you buy books. Additional script editing for this episode by Virilyn Williams. Research and fact-checking by Will Reed. Editorial direction by Josh Levine and Gabriel Roth. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. TJ Raphael is the senior producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Jared Holt is the editor-in-chief of Slate. Special thanks to Rob Smith, Sarah Leonard, Alice Whitwam, Jocelyn Frank, Lisa Larson-Walker, Stephen Steigman, and the wonderful Ryan McAvoy and Doug Forbish at the Yale Broadcast Media Center. Each week, Slate Plus members get an additional episode of Charged. This week, we're talking about plea bargaining with Adam Foss, founder and president of Prosecutor Impact. To learn more and sign up for Slate Plus, head to slate.com slash charged. Charged.